welcome you to Christ Community Bible Church. We know that some of you are visitors with us, and we are glad you're here, and some of you have bravely returned, and uh, we are glad you're all here. At Christ Community Bible Church, we trust Christ, and we treasure Christ. We trust Him to do the impossible. And especially in these times with this virus across the world, we need to trust Christ all the more. But we treasure him as our deepest delight. That when all things are bad, we look to Christ because he is worthy and worthy to be praised. And we are glad you're here. And if you uh, are visiting us online, we welcome you as well this morning. And I welcome you to the most important meeting on the face of the planet. And that is when the redeemed of God gather together and they worship the Redeemer, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins. So we welcome you this morning. And I was excited to see the quote from Tozer this morning. I had a professor that would paraphrase that, and he would say, the most important thoughts you think are the thoughts you think when you think about God. For what you think about God will determine every aspect of your life. And that is so true, that our minds must be fixed on God and God alone. Also, A.W. Tozier was born in a very small town, very close to where I grew up. He moved away quickly and likes of me behind. But uh, I, I do have some kinship with him and where he's originally from. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to Psalm chapter 8. It was what was read by Yevi this morning, and we are going to be in Psalm. This is a beautiful psalm, short. It's only nine verses long but it holds a few distinctions. In 1969, when NASA was getting ready to send the first astronauts who were actually going to land on the moon and walk on the moon, they sent out notice to the nations and they said, what, what words would you have? We are going to put them on a very small plaque with very small behind. What would you leave behind? And different nations, more than 70 nations re responded and they gave them his words. The Vatican only sent Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 was etched onto this silicon plate, just slightly larger than a half dollar left on the moon. In the 1800s, Matthew Murray, he served in the U.S. Navy. He was a devout Christian and he loved the word of God. One day while he was laying ill in bed, his daughter read Psalm 8 to him. And when he heard the next to the last verse, and he heard the words, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. And he recognized, because he believed the word of God, he said, there must be paths in the seas, like great rivers. And then he looked at Ecclesiastes 1.6 that talked about the, the circuits of the winds. And he set about to find those paths in the seas and those circuits in the winds, and he did. And the great ocean currents that are now mapped out and the great winds that we have have been mapped out by this man. And he actually reduced the travel time back in the 1800s to, to uh, go across the Atlantic by three weeks because he trusted the word of God. He believed it and he used Psalm 8 for that. But we're not going to talk about the moon today specifically or the currents in the oceans. Instead, we want to be captivated this morning by the majesty of God. 
The psalm begins and ends, oh, begins and ends, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The majesty of God is on display. And especially in these days where we are surrounded by what people are calling the new normal and we don't know what new normal might be. We don't know what the future holds and, and how we're going to, to live in a world that this virus could be around for a while. We look to the majesty of God. And I don't want to give away the ending, but we are going to see there are three reasons that, that David would tell us that God is majestic. And one is God is the, the great creator God who created the entire universe. And that displays his majesty. And when we look out at the, at the stars and the sun and the moon, we can see that it must have been a great creator God who made those. But he gives us a second reason that God is majestic. And the second reason is a little confounding. And he says, God is majestic because he uses the weak to display his majesty. See, we would use the strong, the powerful to display majesty, dis display glory. And God chooses to use the weak. And then finally, God displays his majesty in that Christ will return and he will make all things new. He will make all things right and his majesty will be on display. That is yet in the future, but it is also promised. So before we get into the study this morning, let me open us up in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for the blessing of the Lord's day. It is a day of rest and a day of corporate worship. We come together to sing your praise and to open your word. By your grace, O oh God, let your people sense your very real presence, whether they are here or worshiping at home. Draw us to yourself and let us hear you speak through your word. Grant us fellowship and unity, whether we are able to worship with one another in person or if it's necessary to distance ourselves for the sake of health. And as we come to your precious word, O oh Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. We confess our own weaknesses and the loud clamoring distraction of the world that would keep us from hearing from you. So we appeal to your mercy. Bless us now as you speak to us. And Lord, I pray you will use your servant this morning, though weak and greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. I want to read the psalm again. It's short, it's nine verses. It says, To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm has been called a psalm for stargazers. And I would agree. I can imagine one of those clear nights where it's extremely dark. You're away from the city lights. You're away from man-made lights. And you look up into the sky and gaze into the deep where the vastness of the universe is on display. The Creator has displayed it for His creatures. The moon dominates the sky as it travels along its appointed course. Some of the neighboring planets are in view as they wander among the stars. And oh, the stars, the canopy of stars that fills the night sky from north to south and east to west and the occasional meteorite that traces its path for a brief yet glorious moment. And the great Milky Way galaxy reveals itself as a thick cloud that traverses horizon to horizon. When we think about it and the vastness of the universe, we cry out with the psalmist who says, the heavens declare the glory of God. For our God is glorious, magnificent, and worthy of praise and honor. But even more so, I agree that this psalm is also a psalm for the soul searcher. It is for the one who looks at the vastness of creation compared to the smallness of man's brief existence and questions the purpose of life. It is for the one overcome by the crashing waves of the storms of life and wonders if there is a God who cares. It's for the Christian, for the believer who is now held to the flame, asking, how long, O Lord, while at the same time praying, thy will be done. There are other believers realizing that this life is but a breath and they wonder, what eternal impact can I have for the kingdom? This year has presented unique challenges and we're forced to consider a new normal Yet eternity looms and we desire to live a life for Jesus that has some sort of eternal impact. I heard a story years ago and I've adapted it to my own family because I get involved in family history research, the genealogy, I enjoy doing that. My fourth great grandfather who bore my last name lived about 200 years ago in central Pennsylvania the last written records of him tell us that he had farmland in a township, township named Warrior's Mark. And apparently the great crop failure of 1815 caused him to lose his land. Since the very last written record I have of him is that his name, along with a score of others, was listed in the newspaper as being delinquent on their taxes. And his name was John. So I asked my family, I asked, I say, do you know the name 
of our great-grandfather's wife. And they look at me because I'm the family historian. I'm the one who should know. And they say, well, no, we don't. What is it? And I say, I don't know. It was never written down. I said, but do you know the name of his best friend? And they're like, no, what is it? I said, I don't know. No idea. But do you know what his hopes and dreams were? What he woke up every morning looking forward to? And they're like, tell us, what is it? I said, I have no idea. I don't know. My fourth great grandfather, who bears my own name, lived about 200 years ago. And I know almost nothing of, of him. Nothing of his life. Scripture tells us that when we live our lives apart from Christ, those works are like hay, wood, and stubble, and they will be burned with fire in the end. Only what we do for Christ's sake will matter. And I know 200 years from now, any distant ancestor or relatives I have in the future, not ancestors, relatives in the future, won't know a thing about me either. But yet I have opportunity now to have eternal impact, to impact the kingdom. What I do for Christ now is what matters. And that's what matters for eternity. For the soul searchers, we must journey beyond the edges of the very universe. And we must travel back in time to creation. We must look forward to a future kingdom where it will all be fulfilled and Christ will reign on the earth. And Psalm 8 in nine verses will take us on all these journeys to help us to find meaning and to find rest for our souls. Derek Hidner was a British Old Testament scholar and he wrote a commentary on Psalms. And he describes Psalm 8 like this. He said, this Psalm is unsurpassed, an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done and relating us to our world and to him, all with a masterly economy and with a spirit of mingled joy and awe. The range of thought takes us not only above the heavens, as we'll see in verse one, and back to the beginning, verses 3 and 6 through 8. But as the New Testament points out, to the very end. I like how he describes this psalm as having a spirit of mingled joy and awe. For when we think about the great creator God, we are struck with awe on what he is able to do. But we also find joy because of who he is. As the psalm title tells us, it was written by David, who lived 3,000 years ago. On one evening, some 3,000 years ago, most likely he stepped out and he gazed up at the night sky and he marveled at its vastness. And he realized how small and how puny we all are compared with the greatness of the universe. And if the universe can be that great, 
then the creator of the universe must be even greater. Now, if you're wondering and you're looking at this and you're wondering what a giddith is, I don't know for certain what it is. It's possibly a musical instrument or some other musical term. But since it comes, the word comes from uh, the name of the town of Gath, which in itself means wine press, some speculate that perhaps it was an instrument that originated in Gath, where it was a psalm for the grape harvest. Two other psalms, Psalm 81 and Psalm 84, also have this term in their titles. And in this psalm, David is exhorting us to worship Yahweh, our creator king, because his name is majestic in all the earth and because he has graciously crowned us, the puny night sky watchers, with glory and majesty. We will see in this psalm again, David exhorts us to worship Yahweh for three reasons. Yahweh's glory is above the heaven and in all the earth. And Yahweh uses the weak to prevail over his enemies. And Yahweh elevated the status of mankind. And he does care for us. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now perhaps in your Bible, as it is in mine, the first word for Lord is written in all capital letters. O Lord, our Lord. That means it is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The second Lord is the Hebrew word, and it means sovereign or king or ruler. So we could read that first line as, O Yahweh. Yahweh, our king. And notice how drawing us in. He doesn't say, oh, Yahweh, my king. He draws the people in. Oh, Yahweh. This is the covenant keeping God who revealed himself to Moses with his very name. He revealed himself when, when Moses was confronted by God in the burning bush. Moses was tending flock up on the mountain. And he saw a bush that was burning, but yet not being consumed by the fire. And he went over to see. And God confronted him and God appointed him to go to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to get the people of Israel set free. Moses didn't like the assignment. And he came up with the first excuse of why me? And God assured Moses that he would be with him. Then Moses asked another question I thought was kind of odd. And he said, well, who should I say sent me? And when they ask your name, what should I say to them? And God said to him, I who I am. Tell the people I am has sent you. This is the personal name of God. The great I am. This is what Jesus claimed of himself at the end of John chapter eight, when the Jews were wanting to kill him, when he said before Abraham was, I am. And the Jewish leaders knew what that meant. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. And so they wanted to put him to death for it. But when he says, I am that I am, 
That means that God exists in and of himself alone. He is the only uncreated in all the universe. By his own will and his own power, he existed before the universe was created. And by the power of his word, he into existence. He has no need of another. And his name also means that he will remain true to himself. He cannot be manipulated or forced into saying anything that is contrary to who he is. That means he will remain as yesterday, throughout all today, and to into all the future. He will not suddenly change. He is faithful. And so ends, O oh Yahweh, our covenant keeping God. Our King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you have set your glory above the heavens. God's name is majestic in all the earth and in the heavens. It says above the heavens. And that means that includes everything in between. The word majestic points to God's visible power and might. Glory too is on display, visible display of God's greatness. He has put his power on display for all. God enlists one of the marvelous things God does. Rain. John Piper describes this, and I'll surely not do justice to his words. But in Job 5, it says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on sends waters on the fields. Now think about it. If you said to someone, my God is great, and does unsearchable, he does wonders without number. And they responded, then he asked, really? Like what? How many of you would say, Rain. That would be what comes to mind. Yeah, he does rain. Rain really is one of the great unsearchable wonders that God does. Just an inch of rain falls on one square mile of farm, a square mile of farmland. That would be almost 28 million cubic feet of water, which is more than 206 million gallons, which weighs more than 1.6 billion pounds. If you were in the Middle East, the water would come from the Mediterranean Sea and it would travel hundreds of miles to get to you. Well, so you ask, how, how does the water go from the Mediterranean Sea up in the blue sky? Well, it gets there by something called evaporation. Well, that sounds good. What's evaporation? Well, evaporation is when, when the water changes from the, from the liquid state to the gaseous state. And that makes it light enough that it can go up and be carried up into the great sky. Well, that's awesome. How does it come back down? Well, that requires condensation. Condensation. Yeah. The water's going to have to change state again. It's going to have to go from gas to liquid. 
And it'll do that by gathering around little dust particles that are smaller than one ten thousandth of an inch. But you ask the Mediterranean, it's full of salt, crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out of the water. You can't have salt in the water to put onto your crops. I picks up one and a half billion pounds of water from the sea and takes it up into the sky and carries it 300 miles and then dumps it on a farm. Well, no, it doesn't dump it on the farm. If it dumped a billion and a half pounds of water on the farm, the crops would be crushed. This guy dribbles it and dribbles it down in little drops. They have to be big enough that they can fall roughly a mile without evaporating, but small enough so they don't crush the crops when they hit. Well, how do all these microscopic specks of water that together weigh a billion and a half pounds get heavy enough to fall? Something called coalescence. Didn't know you were getting a lesson this morning. Now, what that means is the specks of water start bumping into each other, and when they do that, they get bigger. And when they're big enough, they fall down from the skies. So that just happens, huh? Well, no, not really. See, they would bounce off one another if it wasn't uh, for the electric field that was present. But that's going to have to be for another time. You see, rain is an amazing work of God. If we think about amazing works of God. In our own Milky Way galaxy, we have between 100 and 400 billion stars. And the best estimate now is that there are more than 170 billion galaxies in the universe, each with 100 to 400 billion stars, maybe more. The amazing creative God that we have. But if we want to look inward, we could look at the human body or the human heart pumps roughly 3,000 gallons of blood a day. It's amazing what God has created. And yet, even with such insurmountable evidence, many will deny that God even exists. The Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And the story of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God and worshiped and served the creature 
rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So with all the evidence of God's greatness and His majesty, the incredible universe that we see, ungodliness and unrighteousness will still suppress the truth. Though it is plain to them, and suppressing the truth is difficult. Think of it as trying to hold a, an inflated beach ball below the water. The beach ball wants to come up and you have to work hard to keep it down. And they, they can't do that. That's too much work. So eventually, eventually they're going to exchange the truth. Why? They can no longer suppress it. So they just change it. Believe the lies. God... His punishment is his holy restraint and give them over to their lusts. When this poisonous exchange occurs, they will begin worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Suppression of the truth of God will lead to false worship. So this striking declaration that all of heaven and earth are displaying the glory and majesty of Yahweh is met with a startling contrast when we see rising discord and opposition to God. In verse 2, we see foes, enemies, avenger. And we don't need to try to identify them. Psalm 2 tells us entire nations rage against God. Peoples, kings of the earth, unite against him. The rulers of the world take counsel together. Scheme against Yahweh. Verse 4 of Psalm 2 describes God's response. He sits in the heavens and laughs. When it seems the whole world is arrayed against God, he laughs. And then he uses children to defeat them. Simply by having the children praise his name. Yahweh makes his majestic name known through the display of glory for all to see. Our natural response should be to worship him, but he makes his majesty known and puts his glory on display by defeating enemies through the praise of children. Now I know it says in, in here, it says, out of the mouths of babies, infants. I think perhaps a better translation than babies is children. The same word is used in Jeremiah to describe children playing in the streets. So out of the mouths of children, and maybe instead of infants, we could use the word toddlers, just learning to speak. So God puts his display of power out and his might when he uses little boys and girls to speak his truth. This passage tells us it's more than just the display of his glory and majesty that occurs. God's enemies are defeated by the words of the children. And this was fulfilled on a Palm Sunday long ago when Jesus entered Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 21, we read, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and get this, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna, or save us, son of David. They were declaring Jesus to be the very Messiah. The Jewish leaders heard this and they were indignant. They didn't like Jesus. They certainly didn't want the people calling him the Messiah. But Jesus didn't try to stop the children. He didn't try to deflect it or ignore it and say, oh, they're just kids, let them go. No, he went full Messiah on them. And he showed them this was actually fulfillment of scripture. He was saying, I am the Messiah. And when they worship me as Messiah, that means something else. That means he was claiming to be God. Jesus pointed to Psalm 8 and he uses that to say that he is God and is all in fulfillment of scripture. Now you may have noticed that what Jesus quoted was different than what we have in our version. The Hebrew Old Testament says you have established strength. But Jesus quoted from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's something called the Septuagint. A couple hundred years or so, 100 to 300 years before the time of Christ, Jewish scholars had gotten together and because the the Greek language was, was the common language, they had gotten together and they translated the the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And this is the translation that Jesus used. And it wasn't just a a translation, there was somewhat of a paraphrase. They were were making some interpretation in what they did. And that is the, the version that Jesus used when he quoted, you have prepared praise. And it tells us how God establishes strength from children. By preparing praise from them. Jesus affirmed this translation and this interpretation and applied it to himself. Jesus was saying, when those children were worshiping him and praising him, they were praising God. God uses the simple, even what the world would call foolish to confound his enemies. And we should take comfort in that because it doesn't just apply to children. We are studying in our home group in in 1 Corinthians and we see that that God doesn't use the wisdom of the world. In fact, God goes the opposite direction. He says, "This, this isn't how you would do it, but this is how God does it. And the world thinks it's foolish that you would have the creator God die on a cross. That doesn't seem right. But God takes what people call foolish and uses it it for his purposes. Now, when we get to verses three and four, we're presented with a question. Let me paraphrase what David is asking. He says, why do you, O God, give us your personal name? Have a personal relationship with us. You enter into covenant relationship with us. Why do you care about us? That's a good question. 
This just wasn't a question that came to his mind. He was looking out at the vastness of the universe and he was seeing the greatness of this God that must exist, who must be able to create these things. And he says, why would a God like that care about us? Hey God, why do you care? It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David saw the moon and the stars and he wondered aloud, you made these things through the careful work of your fingers. Even these vast galaxies are delicate work for God. How is it that you would care about us? What David probably knew about the universe then wasn't what we know today. How big the universe is, how great it is. And yet this was all delicate work for God to create these things. How great and mighty must God be to do all this work? A man named William Beebe, he's a naturalist, lived a while ago. He used to tell a story about Teddy Teddy Roosevelt when he would be visiting Teddy Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt's home up in Massachusetts, a place called Sagar Hill, after talking for the evening, the two of them would go out into the lawn and they'd begin searching the skies. And they're looking for a certain spot, uh, a little star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Then Roosevelt would recite, That is the spiral galaxy Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It has 100 million galaxies. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own sun. Then Roosevelt would grin and he would say, now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. King David looked up 3,000 years before President Roosevelt And he made his observation. David sees the same thing and he asks why God would care about mankind. In David's question, he makes no presumptions about the answer. Notice how he asks, what is man? He doesn't ask, who is man? David doesn't even bring personhood into the question. We were made from dust. We were made from dirt. Dirt is a what. Dirt is not a who. God, after the magnificence of your creation, you spoke galaxies into existence, mountains and oceans and yaks, all spoken into existence. You picked up a handful of dirt and you created man. So in his very question to God, David makes no assumptions about his value. He doesn't, think that mankind brings anything of value that God would want us. We did nothing to associate honor and glory to ourselves. We we were a what? We were dirt. If there was anything honorable, anything worthy, anything of value, it was God who imparted that value to us. It is not our own. David, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, affirms that God does care, though he doesn't answer why God cares. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. 
and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. The first reason that we know God cares is because God gave us dignity of position. It says he created us a little lower than the heavenly beings and bestowed glory and honor upon us. Mankind has been the highest honor of any earthly creature. Moreover, when scripture says that we are crowned with glory and honor, it is stating that we are made in the very image of God, the very image of the triune God. We are image bearers of the eternal one. And saying that we are crowned with glory and honor means we reflect his glory. And we do that in a way that no other created being can do. The second way we know that God cares is that God has made mankind ruler of the world and its creatures. God is the ultimate ruler, and yet he delegates a portion of that rule to mankind. Though we had no hand in making or creating, we were given a special privilege to rule with God over the earth. Thomas Aquinas was a theologian from the 13th century. And he noted this special position of man. We are a little lower than the heavenly beings, he says. Spirit, but no body. And we are above the which have spirit. We are unique in that we have spirit and body. Yet David didn't describe us as a little higher than the beasts. He said, we're a little lower than the heavenly beings. James Montgomery Boyce, a Reformed Christian theologian, says that since we are a little lower than the heavenly beings, we should always be looking upward to God and therefore becoming more godly in all that we do. It's our privilege and our duty to do so. But humanity has mostly rejected God and therefore humanity looks down to the beasts, down to the animals. And when we do that, we become more like the animals and not like God. This was Nebuchadnezzar's punishment. When Nebuchadnezzar failed to give glory to God and to look up, he was stricken with punishment that made him act like one of the animals. He had the mentality of the beasts of the field. And God appointed us to be rulers over his creation and his representatives. And nothing on earth was to be of our control. But that's certainly not how things over all the earth. Adam and Eve once had this kind of rule and changed quickly and dramatically after they sinned against God. So this passage was the brief rule of Adam and Eve over creation all that there was? Was that what God intended? Or is there more to come? The writer of Hebrews saw this portion of Psalm 8 pointing to Christ. He said, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection 
under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under his, uh, now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, uh, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor before, uh, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, the writer of Hebrews was pointing back to Psalm 8. He's saying, see, in Psalm 8, we talked about those, those three things that God displays his majesty. One is through his massive, incredible creation. The second is he uses the weak, uses children to defeat his enemies. And the third is he's going to overcome the effects of sin. And he's going to restore man's, man's rule over creation. This is yet a future fulfillment of Psalm 8. Christ can fulfill Psalm 8, but we cannot. One day there will be a kingdom ruled by Christ. It will be on this earth where he will fulfill what was written by David 3,000 years ago. Yet when Christ appeared 2,000 years ago, he was not recognized or honored as the one who would fulfill these things. In fact, the prophet Isaiah tells us that Jesus grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. The eternal and infinite God has set aside his glory to become fully human while remaining fully God. He did this for us and we rejected him. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the children declared that he was the Messiah fulfilling verse two of Psalm eight. He will again one day return to fulfill verses six through eight and have all things put under his feet, under his rule. But in between those times, they had described for us the unthinkable. Jesus would be despised and rejected by men. Our iniquity, my iniquity, would be counted against him and he would be killed for our sin. But the great drama doesn't end there. Christ did die on the cross for our sin. He then rose again from the dead on the third day as he said he would. He is now seated with the Father in heaven, waiting for the day to return to establish his kingdom and to fulfill Psalm 8 with all of creation under the God-man's rule. His full glory and majesty will be on display for all to see. O Yahweh, our King, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm began by pointing us to the majestic name of Yahweh, our King. It then seemed to change focus and describe for us the honor and glory of man. Yet in the it was really about Christ, the one and the only God-man who will rule over creation with all things under his feet. We learn from this. First, take heart that God uses the weak. The beauty of Christ is that when I am weak, he is strong. But when I feel belligerent, I have the wisdom, the power, or the charisma to advance his kingdom, I will most surely fail. 
But when I acknowledge my weaknesses and can and does do wondrous things through me. So God uses the weak. His children, those of us who acknowledge our weakness before him. Also, we learn that we have significance as part of the body of Christ. Not only has each one of us been given blood-bought gifts to edify the body, we want to be known here at Christ Community Bible Church as having redemptive relationships with each other. We all have a place to do the things that Christ commanded us to do, and we can have that eternal impact. We desire that significance. We want to be able to do ourselves, not the hay, wood, and stubble, but gold, silver, and precious stones. But again, this is done through our weakness, not when we think we are strong. And finally, we look forward to the day of Christ's return. As we are coming up on the Advent season, it's actually a reminder for us to look forward to the second coming of Christ, to prepare for his return, to be about his kingdom work, to be about those eternal things. Since we have the fulfillment of the first Advent, we have assurance and confidence in a second coming. Christ will put the enemy to shame and make all things new again. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are again confronted by the beauty and relevance of your word. Though an ancient document, this 3,000-year-old song gives us hope and confidence in you. You are always ruling from your throne and there is no creature that can ever take it away from you. And we thank you that you use us in our weakness because that is how we feel, weak and unable to do any good. We see the glory of your creation and we feel small and puny and we see the troubles of this world and we know that things are out of our control. So we rejoice in the fact that you reign and we thank you that no matter what happens in this world, we have refuge in you. So Father, by your spirit, Enable us to live as you Help us to speak truth and love, compassion for all people. Mold us more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Lord. We pray all of this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.